Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Well, we're in part two of our series, Controversial Jesus. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus and politics. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, this week, we're talking about Jesus and anger. And some might be wrestling with, well, what's so controversial about that? The church, when operating according to God's design, is the most beautiful thing on this planet. When people sacrificially love one another, when they lay down their rights for the betterment of others. And yet, the church when it does not operate according to God's design, is broken and ugly, wounding others recklessly. What's controversial this morning isn't so much about anger. What's controversial is our response as a church to anger and what Jesus calls us to. For some of these subjects, the reality is, is we're going to talk about these core values that we're called to that are controversial and countercultural. This certainly is, and yet it is, a, it is a call for us as followers of Jesus to say, okay, we're going to do life and relationships your way. The psalmist said it this way, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that true? Think about your home. How good and pleasant it is when everybody in that household is in unity of heart and mind, whether you're roommates or a family. I don't know what you're Thanksgiving or Christmas was like, but how ugly and how awful it is when there's disunity, when there's arguments around the table, when there's that tension underneath that everyone feels and everyone knows, but no one acknowledges. And so, how do we as followers of Jesus, how do we respond to anger How do we actually engage in a way that brings health and life and beauty and not fuel to the fire? If you got your Bible, if you would open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying this for the last couple of months, and we'll be studying it for the next few months. Jesus last week talked about our relationship to the law, and we unpacked politics. This, this week, he's going to give a very specific example of how we are to be a community of love and how he raises the bar for us. And he says this, You have heard it said to a people long ago, You shall not murder. Good, we got that. Thank you very much. That's the sixth command of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And by the way, just as we think about that, that's the lowest bar on the human scale for, like, love. (laughs) Right? 
I don't murder you. Good. That, that's like the lowest bar on the human scale for society to function. Let's just, not, let's just agree that we're not going to murder one another. Well, everyone agrees with that. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. We have our laws, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures had their laws. Of what happened according to if you cre- murdered someone. Then Jesus raises the bar. The call of followers Jesus, he says, I'm going to raise the bar for you and what love really looks like. Because the intent of the law wasn't, hey, just don't murder people and life will be great. Life will be better for sure, but there's something deeper there. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, circle that word angry, we're going to get to it in a second, with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. The same line. He's equating murder and anger, and he's saying, if you murder people, there's a judgment that's coming. And by the way, there's a type of anger that is connected to judgment. Well, let me explain it a little bit. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, just say that with me. That's kind of fun. Raka. Yeah, no, some of you said it like Mufasa. I like that. <laughs> say it, Raka. This is an incredibly difficult word to translate into the English. Uh, there's no great parallel. It can mean imbecile, numbskull, uh, blockhead, brainless idiot. In their culture, it was one of those unspoken words that was culturally unacceptable to say. We have plenty of those in our days. There's words that you say that will get you fired, correct? There's words that you say that, that all of a sudden, it's like, you don't say that. That is the worst of the worst. This was that word. It's answerable to the court. And then he goes on even a little bit further. Anyone of you says, you fool. You idiot. This is the culturally accepted way to speak negatively about someone. If we were in the South, this is how one would say it. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Which, for those of us who aren't from the South, and I was born in Texas, grew up in Santa Cruz, and did a few years in Georgia. I kind of spoke like that was I did time in jail in Georgia. Not really. I worked there, but it, it felt a little bit like jail. Bless your heart means bless your dumb little heart. You're not so smart. Anyone who says you fool, degrading the image of God before you, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus, listen, 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 elevates anger to the same level as murder. The heart, intent, and the, what comes behind murder You can trace all the way back to anger, and he's saying, I want to get to the heart of the issue and the matter. Um, Let's talk about anger for a second. There's two words in the Greek for anger. The first word is thumas. Say that, thumas. You're becoming Greek scholars this morning. Thumas is the word that describes like a little piece of straw or hay that's lit that ignites quickly and then quickly dies. It's the type of anger that you just have this quick reaction, but it doesn't last with you. The other word for anger, and it's our word here, is orge. Can you say that? Man, 
Now you know two Greek words to impress everyone at your Super Bowl party. I am so thumos right now. Um, Tom Brady again. I won't use that in second service. It didn't land as good as I thought it would. Orge is a deep-rooted anger, a long-lived anger. It is the type of anger that you nurse and nurture like a fire that you keep adding fuel to. This is the word Jesus is using. This is the anger that he's talking about. It's that anger towards another human being that when you see them, you can't help but think, man, I evil thoughts about them. Like your heart, you, you may not say it out loud, but your heart's like, I hate them. What they did to me, what they did to my family, what, how they treated me. And there's this anger that burns, that stays underneath the surface. Well, a few observations about anger in our culture and society today. First, we know this. Anger is powerful, isn't it? It is a powerful emotion. It's effective for some. You've learned to utilize it in getting your way. You've defined your own ethnicity. I'm just Italian. I'm just Irish. I'm just Latin. It's crazy. We all have excuses for our anger. It's motivating. There's some deep-seated thing that when you feel that anger, it begins to motivate and compel you to do things. We've seen it in relationships over and over. The power of anger is so destructive, isn't it? Dividing people, families. And anger, it gives you a sense of control. Uh, One psychologist said it this way. If anger gives you this sense of control, no wonder we have a hard time controlling our anger. Anger is powerful. And anger, by the way, this is important to note, is always a secondary emotion. You're not just angry. Anger is always connected to something deeper. See, you don't have an anger problem. You have a different problem that is expressed in anger. When you see anger, it is the fruit of a root connected deeper in you. You have to ask the question, why am I angry? Where is this coming from? For some, anger is a result of being embarrassed, being scared, being stressed. Maybe you're angry because you're depressed. You feel helpless. You're anxious. Maybe there's an overwhelming sense of shame or you've been rejected, insecure, uncomfortable. Maybe you're disappointed or you were disrespected or you feel guilt. Maybe you're angry because you're lonely or frustrated or exhausted. See, anger is powerful. Anger is always a secondary emotion. There is a root uh, connected to it. And as a result, anger is intoxicating, isn't it? We get caught up into it. Some have called anger like the alcohol of emotions. The minute you give way to it, you just keep going to it. It's contagious with people around you. Don't you love when you're really angry to be with people who like go, yeah. And it's intoxicating because um, in an angry state, we often make really bad decisions, thoughtless decisions, words that cut and hurt people that we love most that we can't take back. 
What's important to note, last thought on anger, is it's not all bad. There is a righteous anger as well. In fact, Ephesians 4.26, uh, the Apostle Paul would say this, In your anger, do not sin. Like, you can be angry and not sin. And we see in the life of Jesus, there's moments he got angry, a righteous anger. He shows up to the temple. He sees a, a prophet on the people of God, an exploitation of the poorest of the poor, and he gets angry about it. He's turning over tables. He's kicking out merchants and those who are ripping off God's people. There is a righteous anger towards injustice. There is a righteous anger towards exploitation and evil and suffering in the world. The problem is, much of our own anger isn't righteous, is it? Sorry, much of my own anger. And sometimes we can fool ourselves, can't we? We can go, no, 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 I'm, (laughs) I'm right, so it's okay for me to be angry. That's why Jesus then gives us two examples. He first gives us a personal example, and then he gives us a professional example. He gives us one from your relationship world and then another from your business world. He's going to go, therefore... If you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're at church and worshiping and we're here going, Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we, oh, wait. I remember that what? Your brother or sister has something. Read it out. Try it again. You're not here worshiping and realizing I have something against them. Jesus raises the bar. You're worshiping, singing, and you realize someone else has something against you. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Bring your tithe. Leave it here. We need it. I'm just kidding. Sorry. (laughs) Bad pastor joke in the moment. You're all with me. But he does say, leave your gift there in front of the altar. It's in the Bible. Now notice, first, more important than your worship. Church, we have to get this. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation is more important than worship in Jesus' economy. What you'll notice throughout the New Testament teaching, what you'll notice as you journey with us in reading the life of Jesus, is in the ancient day, they lived a dualistic religious understanding in that, that they could be right with God and not right with others. As long as I'm doing the religious right things, it doesn't matter whether we're good. That's why when Jesus gave the greatest command, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he adds this little Greek phrase, and the second is like it. It's actually this connection in the Greek that is, it's intimately connected. You can't have one without the other. And love your neighbor as yourself. That I can't con myself to thinking that I am in good relationship, right relationship with God, and not be in right relationship with you. 
because we're all part of the family of God. What is reconciliation? To be reconciled means to be made right, to change from a place of hostility to peace, from enmity to friendship, the restoration to the right and original relationship. Well, Ingram, what about those we can't be reconciled with? I walked in this morning with anger at someone who abused me. Anger. When others have ripped me off. What about that person that's not safe? Are you telling me that I just need to go and be their friends? Well, no. That's not what he's saying here at all. First, reconciliation requires both parties to be willing. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. As far as it depends on who? Thank you, three of you. That was great. Not whether they are responsive or not. See, at the heart of the issue of reconciliation is this idea of being able to forgive the one who's harmed you. Doesn't mean that you have to be friends. And in fact, in some cases, you cannot be friends. But bitterness is something that we hold on to. It's the root of, for some, your anger. And you harbor and hold on to this bitterness against someone. And you think by doing that, you're harming them and you're only hurting yourself. One person once, I don't know who said this, said, you know, bitterness or unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping it will kill the other person. Forgiveness is releasing, it literally means this, to release my right for revenge. I have the right to pay you back for the wrong you did for me, and I'm going to let go of that right. We'll talk more about this in a number of weeks when we get to this place in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgiveness is getting to the place where I may not be in great relationship with you. In fact, I may never get to have a relationship with you. You're no longer around, or you're an unsafe person. But at my heart, I can wish you well. Where I can think of you and I can pray for you. One friend was just talking about this process of forgiveness. And the deeper the wound, the longer the process. And, and as she was talking about this, she says, I just practiced that. It was just over the course of many, 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 many years, I was able to wish my ex well. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go be reconciled. Fight for the relationship. And then he's going to give a professional example. He says, settle matters matters quickly with your adversary. In fact, under settle matters, if you can, you can write, become friends with them is the language in the Greek here. You're like, really? With my adversary? With a hostile enemy? Who is taking you to court? Settle matters quickly with your boss. Settle matters quickly with your coworkers. Settle matters quickly with your direct report or your employee who's suing you. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to judge, to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. That's a bad result. True, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. He's talking about some people that are in a professional dispute, 
an argument. He's saying, why take it? Why let it build and escalate all the way to the point that it has to go to the court and you don't even know what the end result there is? Fight for it and take it out. Get it uh, resolved before you ever get to that point. And what we do is we dig our heels in. And I go, nah, uh Fine. We dig our heels in with our boss. Well, she's always that way. He's always that way. With an unjust circumstance at work. And he says, no, no, no. Engage, don't disengage. Well, how do we engage? I want to spend the rest of our time and shift gears and get very practical talking about how do we settle matters quickly and be reconciled. I want to just kind of the nuts and bolts of this. This has to do, because most or much of our anger relationally is dealing with interpersonal relational anger. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with a, a coworker or a friend. And if we just learn how to resolve anger, we, much of what our conflict, much of what's going on, we can have an incredible sense of unity together. So how do we resolve conflict? First, let me give you a few observations about conflict. First. Observation number one, conflict is unavoidable. Now, I know some of you avoid conflict no matter what, but we live in a fallen world with broken, selfish human beings. You're selfish, by the way. I'm selfish, by the way. And you put two selfish people together, and what do you get? Conflict. Conflict's unavoidable because we have different personalities, there's things that bug you about that person. Maybe it's your roommate. Maybe it's your coworker. And it's nothing wrong that they're doing, and you create conflict just because they have different preferences than you. They have a different personality than you. They maybe have different core values. Every relationship, no matter how good or godly, will experience conflict. Secondly, conflict's difficult, isn't it? It's the reason we retreat from it. It's hard. It, isn't it? Let's just call it what it is. Hey, this is difficult. We often choose the wrong timing when we're stressed out. Some of you are like trying to resolve financial conflict when you're financially stressed. Bad time. We often try to resolve conflict with the wrong emotion. Anger is that emotion that we add fuel to the fire. Maybe it's the wrong method. You're using blaming words or shaming words or, you know, this defensiveness. We often lack personal objectivity in our conflict, right? Because we're right and they're wrong. Is that only me? Do I only think that? Okay, good. I was like, man, I'm all alone on that one. Conflict is unavoidable. It's difficult. But listen, listen, listen. Conflict is an opportunity to grow. For some, you have stunted your spiritual maturity because every time you have conflict in the church, you run to another church. Let that sink in for a second. There is no perfect church. Chris did a great series about that this summer. Go back and listen to it. We are not perfect. If you think we are, you just knew. <laughs> I'm not perfect. And when we run from conflict, we undercut our ability to grow and to mature. Proverbs 27, 17, I think it is. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Think about this. As iron sharpens iron, friction, pain, 
conflict sparks refinement. Conflict isn't always an opportunity to grow. It's how you respond to it. So let's talk about how to respond to conflict healthily or resolve conflict healthily. First, recognize the need for a crucial conversation. Uh, there's this great book. I, I put it somewhere. It's in the back if you want a copy of it. In fact, we have limited copies. I don't know how many, but we're just giving them away. So if you want it, it's called Crucial Conversations fantastic book. He defines, or they define crucial conversations this way, a discussion between two or more people where, one, the stakes are high, opinions vary, and emotions run strong. Sound like some of your uh, business meetings? At home, I mean, when you're talking about the finances, or talking about your kid's future? Crucial conversations. First, we have to recognize the need for a crucial conversation. Matthew 5.23, you just said it. If you're offering your gifts at the altar and remember. Let's talk about two people real quick. First, you're completely unaware of any crucial conversation needed to happen. You're walking through life. This is great. No, there's no need for a crucial conversation. You're oblivious. Would maybe you take a moment as we're talking and as I've been talking that there's one person that kind of pops up and you're like, oh, no, that's not that big of a deal. Oh, no, maybe the Spirit of God is wanting to speak to you going, no, that perhaps is a crucial conversation you need to have. Others, you're over-addressers. Man, you're eager beavers when it comes to crucial conversations. I I get it because that's kind of like my M.O., like, I address, especially younger Ryan, everything all the time. It was exhausting for my wife. Gosh. Like, like you don't need to address it. Not everything's a crucial conversation. Not everything. Not every little irk and pain and issue requires sitting down. The Proverbs also says, love covers a multitude of sins. Maybe you just need to cover a multitude of sins. Give grace, give grace, give grace. For some, you need to pull back on your crucial conversations. And you're like, I don't have any friends anymore because of that. Well, maybe that's the reason why. First, we need to recognize the need for a crucial conversation where, listen, 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 the goal is reconciliation. Remember I gave you the... What reconciliation? To change from hostility to peace. My goal is there is enmity here, and my desire, whether we accomplish it or not, but my aim is friendship. Not the goal, correction. To put one in their place. To prove you are right. To win an argument. In any conflict, if your aim is to win, you may win the argument, but you will lose the friendship. First, we need to recognize our need for a crucial conversation. Second, examine your own heart and part. This is one of the great missing ingredients when it comes to conflict resolution. Because if you're like me, I'm kind of a spewer So the minute I think we need a crucial conversation, I'm like, boom, I'm going after it. 
others of you, you're, you're a stuffer. And so you just stuff everything in, and you just try to hide it. You hide it, and you're kind of like this crock pot that eventually boils over. Others, you're a seeper. You just let it drip out of you. You just let it ooze. You just let it ooze out of you. Examine your own heart. Yeah, but they're the issue. Yeah, that's why we're examining our own heart and our own part. Uh, There's a Texas saying that goes like this. No matter how flat a pancake, there's always two sides. Matthew 7 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. There's this recognition. Okay, there's a conversation that needs to be had. I want to get to the place where my heart's intention is towards reconciliation, towards oneness, towards restoration. And so as a result, I'm going to examine my heart and my part of it. I'm going to look at it, and what part am I playing in this conflict? In the book, Crucial Conversation, he talks about being aware of the stories we tell ourselves. That, that the facts then lead us to telling a story that produce an emotion about it. And what we do is we take the facts, and then we tell a story that gives the motives behind the facts of why they did what they did, And then we feel this incredible emotion. They were doing that to piss me off. They're doing that because they're so mean. I've used this example before. Um, My wife and I, early on, and we still have this pattern. We've just learned how to process this. But our organizational pattern in our house was very different. She's a piler, so anything like she sees that is in, you know, like... um, like for the kids, it will go in this pile in their room, and then whatever's mine, like it will go on my uh, night desk by the, whatever you call that, side desk. What is that thing by your bed? Nightstand, thank you. By the, and so she'll put it right there. Now, I happen to be what I like to call a free organizer. I freely organize my things around the house, but I know exactly where they're at. And so I put my wallet here. I put my keys here. And for whatever reason, that, that doesn't jive with the you know, home my wife was trying to create. And so she would pile them over here. It was fascinating. The facts are simply that she's taking my stuff and putting them over here. The story I told, because I told her I didn't like that, was that she's doing that just to piss me off. And the feelings I felt, now this is so silly. The feelings I felt was actually deep anger. Isn't that stupid? And isn't that real? Beware of the stories we tell. He goes through three specific stories, and I encourage you to look them up and read it. First is the victim story. Now, I'm not talking about the, the true victims. I'm talking about the stories we tell where it's not my fault. Then we tell villain stories. It's all their fault. And eventually we'll tell a helpless story. Well, there's nothing I can do. No, no, there is. Recognize the need for a crucial conversation. 
Get to the point where the goal is reconciliation. Examine your heart and part. Understand, hey, here are the facts, and here's the story I've been telling myself that is informing the feelings that I'm having. And I want to get back and just know what is actually happening and go, okay, this is the story I'm telling. I don't know if that's the true story or not, but this is the story I'm telling myself. And finally, number three, set a time to talk. Don't put it off. Set up a time to talk. Don't put it off. First, just between the two of you. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us an outline for how we're to go about conflict. He says, if your brother or sister sins, and uh, some manuscripts it says sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. Set up a time to talk. Don't put it off. Don't stuff it away. Don't just kind of wipe it away. Now we're going to talk. Because if you don't, it becomes the lens by which you view them. It becomes this way that you see others and you interpret all of their actions through that story you told a long time ago. No wonder we're having such a hard time dealing with conflict in the church. We don't want to do this. Set, and what do we do when we talk? First, state the facts, not the story. State the facts, not the story. Address the problem, don't attack the person. You state the facts, not I have to get this off my chest. You state the facts, not I just need to tell you my truth. State the facts, not I've had this happen a few different times over my pastoral career. Someone come up to me, I I just really need to apologize to you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've just harbored bitterness in my heart towards you. Friends, never do that. That's that's abdicating your responsibility of your own emotional issues and putting that on the other person. I can't do anything about your bitterness. That's between you and God. I can do something about if there's an issue that I'm doing that's causing you harm. Let's talk about that. State the facts, not just simply the stories you're telling. Secondly, be specific. Focus on one issue, not many issues. When it begins to get emotionally charged, when you're angry, then all of a sudden you go to your Rolodex of issues and you begin to take the shotgun mentality and like, boom, 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 boom. And let me just play it all on. That is destructive. Language matters. Speak the truth in love. Tone matters. Body language matters. Eye contact matters. See, you set up a time to talk in person whenever possible. The the deeper the issue, the greater the pain, the more personal the conversation. For some, you you hate this, and I get this, and it's hard. It is. We already talked about that. And so you leave it up to an email. Don't do that. Email doesn't communicate your tone. And an email, they can read into whatever you're saying through the story they're telling themselves. And then finally, give a generous explanation for their behavior. If you've been around a while, you'll know 
I've used this many, many times. What's the most generous explanation for their behavior? What's the most? This is powerful for pulling yourself out of your own story and having an empathetic listening ear when you begin to give them the most generous explanation for their behavior. Imagine if you did that with your spouse. Imagine if you did that with your kids. Imagine if you did that with your roommates. You go, what is the most generous? What is the best explanation? What we jump to is the Worst explanation. Let me give you a quick illustration of how this played out many, many years ago. My wife and I and our kids, our family, we're at a Keys. Love a Keys, great restaurant. It was, I don't know, it was one, it was probably Sunday afternoon. We got there and we're out on the patio deck, and um, there was a group there that had been there quite a while of young men and women, and they clearly had enjoyed quite a few uh, swirls up to that point. And we're sitting behind them, and this is four or five years ago. My kids are much younger. And the conversation that was happening at this table was, was, it was vulgar. I mean, just crass and crude, filled with all sorts of profanity. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I don't want to, like, insulate my kids. But, I mean, they're taking over the entire patio and, my, and they're right behind them. It's just getting to a point. And I'm thinking about, okay, so how do you do this? How do we engage in this conversation in a way that, that actually helps it and doesn't add fuel to the fire? I love Proverbs 15. I think verse 1, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So how am I going to engage gently in this? And so I get up. I walk over to him and say, hey, guys, I love what's going on here. Clearly, you guys are friends, and you value friendship and hanging out together, and you're having a blast. It's awesome. However, there's some of the words that you're using in the language that I, I just have my kids right behind you, and you saw the whole table. There's like nine of them turn, and their faces turned white. And they're like, no. And I mean, literally, they're like, oh, my gosh, we're so sorry. I have a niece. I have a nephew. I'm so sorry. I would never talk that way in front of, I am so sorry. I mean, they were so, and he's like, let me buy you a swirl. I'm like, no, 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 that's okay. They did anyways. It was delicious. State the facts. Don't attack the person. It's so easy in that moment. You guys are idiots. Can you see that this is going on? Be specific. Focus on one thing. It's just your language. We're not going to talk about your excessive drinking in this moment. Like, we're, we're not going to address that issue. Let's just, let, let's just address the language. Language matters. Speaking the truth, it was truthful, but it was in love. It was in love. And I gave the most generous explanation. It is amazing that when you follow that, you will resolve conflict. Quickly and well. But if you get stuck, get outside help. Not a buddy or someone who just agrees with you. See, that's what we go. We go to our friends and we gossip. It's called prayer request, but it's called gossip. <laughs> we, we are incredibly vague on social media, but everyone knows what we're talking about. And we try to get people on our side. If you get stuck, 
get outside help. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Wise counsel. By the way, if you're married or in a serious relationship, I just deeply encourage you, go to counseling. My wife and I have been doing it for four years. And it took way too long and too much heartache. We were just there this past Friday. It's awesome. We do it monthly. Would you get wise counsel? Maybe it's a godly, wiser, older person that you respect their life. You respect where they're at and how they're going about life. You would want to do it that way. Instead of just going to the people in your same stage of life and criticizing and complaining and getting people on your side. Maybe it's finding a spiritual director or talking to a pastor. But if you get stuck, get outside help. And if you're stuck with this issue about unity in the church, Jesus say, bring it to the leadership of the church. First, the two of you, get outside help. And if stuck, bring it to the leadership of the church. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, then there's a moment where reconciliation is no longer possible. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. We are called to address difficult issues when it'd be easier to avoid difficult people. That is the invitation of Jesus, the calling of his followers. Okay. Let me stand and we're going to close this out. For some, when I was talking about anger, you felt like we shifted. And there was a deep reservoir there, wasn't it? You know, like great conflict resolution, that's awesome. But what do I do with my anger now? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, notice this, let us firmly hold to the faith we profess. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do I do with the anger that's just been taking over, the hurt and the pain? Friends, this isn't a trite saying. This is a true saying. Bring it to Jesus. There's a part of your soul that you have not brought to him because it did not feel like it was okay to bring to him. As one writer said, we are to bring to God what's in us, not what we think we should or ought to bring to God. See, when you approach Jesus, you approach one who was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Have you been betrayed? Are you angry because you're betrayed? So has Jesus. Have you been rejected? So has Jesus. 
Have you been disappointed by those closest to you? So was Jesus. Have you been humiliated and pushed out? And is there something going on where you were slapped and abused and unjustly, unfairly treated? So was Jesus. And when you approach the throne of grace, he says, call out to that great high priest and you will receive mercy in your time of need. But you, this week, bring it, bring it. Jesus. The issues, the heartache, the pain, he can handle all of it. It's not reverent. It's not holy. Read the Psalms as they teach us how to bring our full emotion and pain before God. Heavenly Father, this sermon lands in many different places this morning. There's some that need to have a conversation that they've been putting off for years, and I pray that you would give them the courage to go through the process. That that we'd be a church that's beautiful and unified, and like a watching world would go like, wow, I don't know about that Jesus, but the way they do relationships, I want. That we'd have courage there. And there's others who have walked in this morning with such deep heartache and pain. And that anger that has just been burning, you want to meet in their need. Would you give them the courage to bring all of them to you, maybe for the first time? Like the cry of faith, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this. Jesus, help. Would you meet me? God, I need mercy, I need grace, I can't do this. Thank you. Thank you that you're not some distant God onlooking and going like, why are you just wrestling with all that? But you stepped into humanity and became one of us and you understand the heartache and the pain and you welcome us to yourself. May we be a church that runs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.